blood also floats. That's <laughs> <laughs> actually that's an awesome kickoff. <laughs> Watching people in space and having conversation and their face gets all puffy, right? But that's because all the fluid <laughs> goes up. So when I saw that for the first time, I was like, what the heck is doing? Welcome back. Mops and Moes, Alex and Drew here. This is week three. If you've been following along, this is the third week of a four-part NASA series that we are working our way through. This week functions as the second part of the two-part, so it's almost like a mini-series within a series, where we are talking again with the human performance team at NASA's Johnson Space Center. So if you listened to us last time, you will hear the same four voices. We have Corey who is one of the ACERs, one of the strength coaches at Johnson Space Center, Major Danielle Anderson, one of the physical therapists, Christy Keeler, also an ACER, an athletic trainer, uh, and then Bruce Nieschwitz, uh, who is another athletic trainer. So the same four voices this time, we are focusing more specifically on the in-flight stuff, but then also getting into some of the post-flight uh, the roles that they play as in, in terms of pre-testing, post-testing, what actually happens to these folks' bodies as they're coming back from being in outer space and, and the role that all four of these people play on the human performance team. And I'll do a quick shout out here to a voice you don't really hear a lot from, if at all, in the episode. Um, but she played a, a key role behind the scenes here. Anna Schneider is the public affairs person who was tasked to deal with these weird podcasters who started harassing NASA folks. Um, and she was absolutely fantastic. She kept us on the rails. She made sure we knew the rules and she provided a ton of good notes. She basically wrote the show notes for us. She really did. And you will, you'll have seen links on each of these. You'll see links on this one for sure with lots of resources. If you want to go deep dive what NASA is doing, especially in terms of how they spin off knowledge that comes from the spaceflight program to benefit people around the world with cool new tech and research stuff. And she was invaluable at pointing us in the right direction to find the resources for those things. So huge shout out to Anna. And then you guys have hopefully already listened to the previous episode. Jumping into this one midstream would be pretty tough. Yeah, I would listen to the, the uh, these are meant to go together. It just was going to get too long. So we divided it into two. Yeah, I could see some other ones where you might be able to like listen to Shane on the astronaut episode by himself or listen to Judy on the research episode by herself. But for these two episodes with the Acer team, this is very much a continuation of the conversation we had last week. Um, so highly recommend listening to that if you have not already. And the other thing too, I'll throw out there is is sort of a call for engagement from the community because again, having attended strength and conditioning conferences before, having been around the tactical scene for a while, you never hear anything about NASA. So much so that I didn't even realize they had a human performance team until we were talking to Shane. And then obviously it makes a ton of sense that they would. It's just not really something that you hear about. Um, and if you you paid attention to their bios last week, you will have heard that for all of these folks, they've, they've been in these roles for a really long time. Uh, and, and these aren't really jobs that you see pop up very often. So I think that there's a lot of really cool information that could be gleaned from the years and years of experience that these guys bring to the table. So as you're listening to this, if, if you're the type of folks that likes to slide into the DMs or shoot us an email or engage with us on the website, if there's more that you want to hear about the role that these guys play, let us know, because um, we're more than happy to bring people back on and to dive deeper. We just want to make sure that it's content that folks are interested in. Enjoy. 
Okay, I do want to ask this question because last time we were we were sort of touching on the in-flight stuff, and I'm going to steal this one from Alex because I think this might be one of his. And the term space dynamic warm-up comes up, space stretching, which I guess on the surface seems a little silly, but really, if you think about it, I mean, what is a what is a warm-up in space look like? Or, or do you need to warm up in space? Go ahead, Corey. I guess I, I will start only from what I've seen crew members do because we do have a part of our job where we watch crew members, especially initially in the pre-flight, or excuse me, in the early in-flight phase, um, train on the A-rig. I can remember seeing one crew member run in place uh, while they were floating. It looked very interesting. <laughs> and they were just floating on top of the A-Red and their legs were just moving back and forth in place. And they were doing that for about four to five minutes. Um, that same crew member also started to do some other type of just bending and flexing while holding and bracing themselves onto the A-Red just to warm up their body. And then outside of that, it gets how would you say exercise specific, obviously versus floating because you need load. So very light load on say body weights or excuse me, not body weight, but on the A-Red of doing a squat, single leg squat at very, very light loads. And then they ramp up to relative load from that point. So this might be a dumb rabbit hole, but I got to ask it. When I think about warming up and I think about like, I get to the gym, I just feel kind of tight, kind of stiff. Does that happen in zero gravity or is it, and again, this is, I recognize this is a dumb question, but people are going to want to know, like, are you, because there's a part of me that thinks that, yeah, maybe in zero gravity, you're sort of just always kind of feeling good to go, quote unquote. I think the opposite, at least for I, I, verbal, I guess, testimony is that they do feel like they want to stretch. Um, they want flexibility. It's just not an easy task. We've seen some other creative pictures of crew members trying to stretch, almost doing certain yoga poses by holding on to certain aspects of the vehicle uh, as far as locking their feet. And maybe someone else can chime in and answer that better than, than I can. But chiming their feet under some of the, the rails and then grabbing something overhead or using that same, I guess, concept of bracing themselves in a foot stance, I guess, in one position and then reaching for something in another position to try to help themselves. But the desire um, to be able to stretch, I think, is amongst all of them that all of them would love to be able to do that. Is mm -hmm. I guess they have to be creative, bottom line, in order to figure out how to stretch to elongate those muscles that they're trying to target. I think time is a component as well, just like on the ground. Um, you've got, you know, you're lifting, you're running, your cardio, whatever. And the first thing to go off the table usually is stretching. And so they're limited on their ability to do A-RED in either Cevis or T2. And that might be, Cevis or T2 might be before or after A-RED. So that's a factor as well as far as their warm-up. But um, it sounds like time from what I've heard from crew um, can be a factor as well. When you see video of them floating around inside the capsule or inside the space station, um, they tend to be in an almost, I wouldn't say fetal, but it's its very much a close to fetal type position. Hip flexion, knees bent, maybe even a little hunched over. And they tend to stay in that position a lot because there's nothing really stopping them from getting stretched out or straightened mm -hmm. out. So you'll get a lot of people complaining about uh, hip tightness 
And when they first get up there, of course, they, they go through an adaptation of being in space. So they might get, even get some some low back pain or something that gets a little bit tight and that they, they need to do some stretching just to feel feel good. So that's an interesting, I mean, Christy, you mentioned time, and I don't think this is one thing that we really dove into last time we spoke, but you guys discussed how the schedule is pretty regimented for these, these guys and gals, like from the moment they get up to the moment they go to sleep. So from, from a training standpoint, I mean, it's not negotiable. They can't really go over what they're allotted within the day. I'm assuming because of all the implications that we discussed last times in terms of lowering, you know, altitude of the vehicle and all that kind of thing. Does that ever become tricky? So there is scheduling depending on the number of crew on station, especially, you know, just like what we had a couple of weeks ago when there's a handover where crew six is on there, crew seven arrives, you have the Soyuz crew as well. Um, so that's 10 people and they're all trying to be scheduled around ARED, T2, Cevus. So that's kind of a jumble. So sometimes they're working out, you know, right before bed or right when they get up. But they, that exercise time is protected, so that time can't be taken from them, no matter where they are in their work on their time workflow for the day. I mean, I have other questions before we close that one. Is do you guys kind of have to like fight with other departments to get that time protected? Like, I'm sure there's lots of other people who want certain tasks done and research things done and a million other things. Is is the training time well protected, or is that something you guys have to defend? We have to defend things now and then when it comes to, uh, well, I would say that a change, I'll just change my, the way I'm going to explain this. <laughs> the, the time for exercise is ex extremely hands-off. It's just like sleep or some of the other stuff that the crew have to, you know, you have to have. It's not only you looked at as a health benefit, performance benefit, but it's also a psychological benefit. They, they can get away from their normal life on space station by doing exercise. That's something that they can completely zone out. This is what I'm doing right now. And, and nothing else is going to stop me from doing this. Now, with that said, because it's an, it's, it's a lot of time that's dedicated to exercise. There is a, I wouldn't say an attack on it, but there's always, there's always a little bit of, you know, picking at things like, well, do we all, do we absolutely need that two and a half hours per day for protected exercise or could we do with less? So it, it brings in a lot of the questions. Now, even if we came up with some sort of scheme that we could be more efficient with it or, you know, the whole optimization of performance, that kind of stuff, I don't know how far it would fly because the crew really liked that time and their flight doctors and everybody else in flight medicine is going to, to protect that time for them including us. So this is more of a curiosity question than anything. And it's specific to what you just mentioned there, Bruce, like, cause the, I guess the analogy I'm thinking of for our, our more, more grounded forces, army, Navy, air force, like we hear all the time stories of the first thing that gets taken away from a time standpoint is PT. There's always something else going on. That's the first thing that leaders will take away. But for you guys, it sounds like there's a little bit more priority placed on it. And I guess my question is, who is who makes that ultimate call as to 
yeah, you can have more time. No, you can't have that time. Is, is there somebody kind of over the entirety of the schedule or does it really come down to the person who's up there, you know, doing the thing, if that makes sense? Whoever violates that rule of time has to report to Corey for extra <laughs> <laughs> space burpees. <laughs> There, there are flight rules and documentation that's been established for many years ago that that lays out certain guidelines that that have to be, you know, accounted to, accounted for, mm-hmm. um, and certain things aren't violated very often. Now, if if like you said, if we're in some sort of contingency with with hardware issue or some sort of docked operations issue or EVAs or something like that, there is there is an, an allowance for the exercise time to be shifted around and, and or cut or something like that. But that has to still fall into these, these standards or these guidelines that, that are laid out. It can't just be, Hey, I think that uh, so-and-so needs to have less time for exercise today. So I'm going to cut a half hour out of their time. They're not allowed to do that. It is, it is protected. It's, it's set in stone per se. I mean, it's, it's pretty hard to, to, to alter from that. There are a lot of military people getting jealous right now. <laughs> So speaking of things that are protected for astronauts that aren't always protected for military, uh, we talked about recovery last time and how the fact that you're not experiencing gravity and impact with the ground and all that stuff means you actually recover faster in space. But I'm wondering if that applies as well to sleep. And I'm imagining it being like a pretty unsettling experience to try and sleep in space. I don't know how that goes or how long it takes people to adjust to that. Or it's awesome. Is, we don't know. I mean, it could be. Is is sleep in space as recuperative as sleep in normal gravity? Like, do they recover as well? Do they fall asleep as quickly? Do like do all those things line up pretty well, or is it better? I don't know. Yeah, I would just go off of uh, crew member testimony. I've never heard anyone say that I had bad sleep in space. <laughs> I have no data or anything tracking that or to back that up as far as quantifying. Um, total sleep in addition to itemizing that out and which stage of sleep that they're getting compared to what they've done in 1G. Whether if that data exists, we don't see it, nor do we track it unless they're doing a payload. And then I I haven't seen that payload or that science come across my email. But generally the, the testimony that I hear is either sleep is okay, pretty good, or is great. I've never heard anyone say, yeah, sleep sucked, or bad, or I had a difficult time sleeping. I mean, I want to I want to scratch that a little bit because, you know, one of the big things that everybody is so keyed in on these days is sleep, and you've got your wearables and your rings and blah, 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 and everyone wants to know all the numbers. And we kind of established last time, and even talking to Shane, like, the the whole process of sending somebody into space and then I would assume training them while they're in space is very data-driven. There's a lot of physiology behind it. But I'm also then hearing you say that like sleep is not really a talking point or you don't really get that information. I, like that's interesting. And, and maybe it's just as the way that we asked the question, but I'd be curious as to like why sleep isn't something that you would monitor as intensely as we might think that we like to do down here on earth. Yeah, I, I think first, if we could get into uh, the weeds slightly, especially outside of my wheelhouse, if we start talking about 
how to measure sleep and to really truly measure mm -hmm. accurately to the point that NASA would want to invest in something outside of a research study to just um, on standard practice or in operations form measure sleep. In addition to the complexity of what something would have to go through in order to fly to be into International Space Station through NASA system. Like for example, flying a Garmin watch is not an easy process. It has to go through many different steps, many different checks and balances uh, of that deal to even be certified to fly. Same thing with Oura Ring. And that's, that's, that's just talking about the hardware certification. We're not really talking about the science of what the data is itself before, say, Garmin Watch or for Oura Ring. And I, I think if you were compared to, I can't remember the gold standard of sleep measurement. And if that is flown, that, that may have flown on a payload. When I say payload, I mean research study uh, mm -hmm. a few years back where they may have um, got some type of indication from that. But um, yeah, that, that's where I guess that's at now. I don't know if that's helpful at all. But. No, that is. And quite honestly, you just brought up something that I don't think Alex nor I even conceptualized when we, when we thought about this conversation and like, excuse the pun, but I feel like we're standing on like a black hole of a rabbit hole here, but wearables in space. So you just mentioned Garmin. I'm, I'm, so there's like a whole thing that these wearables have to go through to be certified to be like, do you guys use wearables do you receive that feedback do you is that part of the process or is it like impossible to get one of those on board one of these vehicles i mean it, it probably would fly easier if an astronaut would want to fly a certain wearable device now that has happened where an astronaut that chose to fly a certain their particular wearable that has happened i guess with the nasa system we do in our training programs we do for 1G. We do have a lot of crew members who use different wearables and we interact with those wearables. We do know if we're looking at heart rate, again, it's more accurate if you have the chest strap versus just the wristwatch as far as that is concerned. Um, so we do coach that point of it. But as far as how complicated that process is and we kind of let them I guess spearhead that if that's something they want to do. And if we just go from there, I, I would, uh, because I think there would be probably just not just the hardware battle that you have to have, because if you put something in the space station, there's a lot of safety concerns that go in well outside of my ability to even present them all uh, with just that piece of hardware. In addition, we have to be able to say that the information, so say if I Say, this is a wearable watch I want to fly. Okay, this is the data I get back from it, that that heart rate, uh, HRV, say, for example, and I get from my Garmin watch, if you're talking about that. You need to be able to, in an evidence-based fashion, present all that information and be able to present how accurate it is relative to the gold standard, you know, versus just, okay, yeah, let's just fly this or do that. It, it has to be fully digested by the research or the, the science community to the point where they um, can really stand behind it in order to make that decision. Yeah, because I'm thinking like, I have a tough enough time getting my Garmin to work 
on a track. I can't imagine getting a Garmin to work in space. Well, surely I'm, just, I'm starting sink. to think about this. I mean, you're like GPS stuff, right? You're, you're among the satellites that provide us GPS. <laughs> Is it going to like start tracking distance because you're spinning around the globe like multiple times a day? You, you could set some serious records on Garmin. Actually, the, those are going to be some it. like in high demand Strava routes. If you just like turn on run and like circumnavigate the globe in like half an hour, man, uh, that'd be some pretty cool stuff. (laughs) When it come up and say lunar, lunar EVA, (laughs) something, I don't know. But but although we don't necessarily monitor from like a a monitoring, external device monitoring, there is a, a large team that's devoted to making sure that sleep and fatigue management are well incorporated into the overall human performance. So there's an entire fatigue management cell, behavioral health and the flight medicine clinic. And they really prioritize sleep as part of their private medical conferences that they do. That is one question that they routinely ask to ensure that crew members are subjectively reporting that they get a good amount of sleep. And and then from the other side too, We've talked about that schedule being so protected. Um, the crew members are constantly videotaped throughout the day. And once they head into that crew rest, and uh, that's a, a time that is fully protected to them. So the video cameras are turned off. It is an environment that's created to really allow them time to just decompress from the day and really start shifting into that kind of rest mindset. Do you guys, uh, I mean, the multidisciplinary buzzword comes up when I hear you say that there's like a fatigue management team and all the, like, is that something that you guys engage with while you're, I mean, we'll call it like while your athletes are up in space, is that, do you guys meet with them relatively frequently and does that drive some of the training conversations or no? I think it does. And I think collaboration or integration, I think that's a constant, I guess, pursuit in any community. And just because how big, in general, how big NASA is and how many different SMEs or groups that we have here, we have to continue to, uh, I guess, push the envelope in that aspect. But we definitely try to work in a community fashion, especially how complex the situation is in general, be it whether it be behavioral health or guess the nutrition lab in addition to the bone lab and so forth. We always try to go out there and bring that information home to where it's actionable and and helpful. Man, there was some, some fascinating stuff there. I'm going to, I'm going to shift us a little bit because we could do an entire episode on like physiological monitoring well in space kind of stuff. And that might be a tiny bit too nerdy for some people. I was going to ask, and this is shifting from like performance to rehab a little bit. And you guys mentioned this briefly last time we talked, but I don't think we really went into it, but like rehabbing musculoskeletal stuff in space. Is there, has there been a time when you had to rehab like a major MSKI in space? Has there been anything like that? Yeah, we've had a few incidents. Um, I'll let Danielle speak to more of this because there was one that happened more recently and um, it's been released, right, Danielle? It's been uh, open a couple of years ago, right after Danielle got here. And we had some changes in staffing with our group and um, some stuff was kind of dropped into my lap. And then Danielle was magically there for us to to uh, to utilize. And so um, I'll just let her take it from there. 
Yeah, I think MS is another just great example of that multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary team trying to manage a really complex um, situation. So we had a, a crew member, it was one of um, Bruce's, he was the acer for this crew member who was up on station, who was about to set the record for a year long mission. And um, he was probably one of the only individuals that had a operationally impacting MSK injury and it was related to the cervical spine. Um, so he was about to go out the hatch for an EVA or a spacewalk and was doing ARED and noticed that he could not do any type of tricep extension on one of his arms. He also was complaining of some neck pain at, a time, at the time. So it was pretty apparent that he had a pretty complex cervical radiculopathy. Um, and after a course of, you know, the normal medical management of getting some oral prednisone, some rest, um, things were just really not progressing for him. So Bruce and I spent a lot of time just trying to brainstorm, like, without normal gravity vectors, how would you effectively rehab somebody? And we came up with just a lot of different ways um, to put him into positions of comfort and positions of easing the, the ridiculous symptoms that he was having. And fortunately, through um, Bruce, Bruce and I's programming with him, with the support of the flight docs, and the whole interprofessional team, we were able to, to get him through a pretty significant injury. And then he was able to stay on the space station for that full year. So he was probably the closest case that I think has come uh, to what we'd consider like a medevac uh, due to an MSK injury. And, and we're just thankful that we were able to successfully rehab him up there. I mean, what is that a conversation that happened? Like, was there a, if we can't fix this, this That's guy might have ask. to come back early? Yeah, so there's there's a lot to consider, right? And I think this is what's interesting about MSK injuries in space that we don't necessarily have to deal with in 1G is rest is fine here, right? If you tear your ACL, you can I can put you out for six to eight weeks and, and you're not going to have that much of, of, a, of a physiological impact. If I tell you or if Bruce tells you, if any of the ACERs tell you to take two weeks off of exercise in space, and um, now we're dealing with a multi-system physiological impact, right? We have cardiovascular changes. We have bone mineral density changes. If you're rapidly losing that bone mineral density, now your kidneys are potentially impacted because of all that calcium that's building up. So you have this multi-system response that if you tell somebody to rest, um, that we don't really want to deal with that risk. And so the, the question really came down to if, if we can't get him better within a six-week period um, to where he has to effectively load through ARED, effectively load through the other countermeasures, um, it would have been a consideration to try to bring him home just to protect him physiologically. So on that and, and sort of shifting the conversation towards coming back home, I, I know we've we've sort of touched on a couple of different things, but you know, I'll, I'll open this up to all of you because I'm not sure who is most, I guess, who, who is best positioned to answer it. And it might differentiate between the different, we'll call them pillars, whether it's performance or musculoskeletal. But I guess as a, as a kicking off point, what are the biggest, what are like the biggest physiological or even musculoskeletal adjustments that you see when they come back down to 1G? And then kind of as a follow-on to get you thinking about it, how much of those can you mitigate as they're sort of getting ready to come back maybe in the last couple of weeks or months, or, or, or can you even do that? Uh, I would say initially the most obvious stuff is, is near vestibular and, you know, proprioceptive changes. 
you can see those right away. Balance is an issue. A lot of that stuff will resolve within the first couple of days with with a lot of the people. Sometimes different, you know, different. Everyone's different, and, and the way it affects everybody differently is is sometimes fascinating. You know, you can make a, a best guess at oh, I think this person's going to do pretty well because they have this body shape or this person's a second time or a third time flyer or whatever. This person is really, really high performer. And it'll surprise you. And sometimes they they struggle a little bit when they come home. But the initial stuff that you see is almost always nervous, vestibular balance, you know, that, that type of coordination and uh, proprioceptive issues. And then the rest of them kind of follow suit down the line with other effects, you know, the other effects that we see. The only other one I'll add in, because I think it's kind of interesting here and one I didn't really think about before I got here is just that orthostatic intolerance. Um, I think one of the first crew members that we came back, I had the bright idea of doing like a, a Sorensen test of putting somebody in a GHD and having them go head down, lift up um, and quickly realized, right, that probably wasn't the best thing for somebody that has a little bit of orthostatic intolerance. And so I think that's just something when you think of that vestibular effect, the orthostatic intolerant effect is just a, a little bit different from that rehab perspective. Something else we see a lot of is just a decreased mobility, um, specifically in the lumbar, thoracic spine, cervical spine, and the hips. And so that's one thing that we start working with them every day. Um, and you'll just like with stretching and immobility, it takes time. So you'll see that increase over time. We also will screen them once a week. And so that's a way that we can, and we measure where they are um, on different exercises. And we're looking at range of motion and strength and endurance um, and balance. So we, we do track that every week and we're able to track their improvements and then report that back to their flight doc. So the thing that came to mind and the question I wanted to ask Bruce as you were talking is, I mean, for for folks that you guys have sent up and brought back multiple times, there's kind of two thoughts I have. One, do you see the same types of reactions? Maybe reactions is the wrong word, but do you see the same types of reactions for the same person each subsequent time? Like if somebody has a tendency to do X, does that tend to happen each subsequent time? And then sort of the second question for folks that have maybe been up and come back down multiple times, do some of those consequences kind of trail off the more you do it, if, if that makes sense? Uh, I would say that some of the folks that I've seen that have flown twice tend to do very similarly than they did the first time. I've worked with a couple people now, or at least observed um, a couple people that have flown multiple missions. And the two that I'm thinking of that maybe did I wouldn't say poorly when they return because it's just something that's just, it just happens. Right. But, you know, cause some people just, we tend to say, quote unquote, do better. A couple of these individuals, they just did have some problems where they, you know, the, whether it was near vestibular or balance or something else, just orthostatic or, you know, nausea, whatever the case is, it just kind of lasted with them a little bit longer than you might see with some other folks. And it was just innate to them. Right. And, um, it didn't really change much from one mission to the other. They just kind of struggled with that at first until it went away and then they were fine. As far as the multiple flyers, there are definitely some, some folks that have flown multiple missions and, you know, they tend to, at, at minimum, they do as well. Um, I've seen 
uh, one that I think flew four times or at least three. And uh, <clears throat> he seemed to do better every single time that he came home. So it was just individual with him. So I, I think there is a, a the, the body has a learning effect in a sense where it, it remembers the being in space thing. And then it remembers the whole at readaptation to earth's gravity again. And then maybe it just gets there a little faster. You know, it's kind of clicking a little bit faster with some people, some others just, they have their issues that they have to deal with. And once they get past them then, then they do fine. So it, it's kind of a yes and no and a yes and no on both of your questions. I think that that's fair. And I mean, I guess just as one last follow on to that, do you guys, I would imagine that the longer someone is, is in space, the more these things tend to come into play when they get back down and then the shorter duration, maybe less so, but I could be wrong. Well, that's, that's the going hypothesis. Anyway, we've only had five people that have had, extended long missions in space so it's not a it's not the best not the best end to work with right um the other thing is that you know they're not flying like within two years of their first mission that's usually they're a lot older and so you know that as we age we just don't we just don't readapt to things as as quickly and as easily um mm -hmm. so that can be a factor but um it's funny that that you know we have this assumption that they're automatically the time is going to just you know it's going to be exponential or you know the longer they're up there the worse off they're going to be but remember we do have the countermeasures in place with the exercise and they're doing everything that they're doing as a six-month mission or a three-month mission they're doing for a nine-month mission or a 12-month mission so um, they're exercising at a high a high capacity every single day and we're monitoring them daily and weekly and if they're still performing at the same level on their exercise, then there's really, I mean, there's not tons of data to say that, well, they're just still, they're still doing worse, right? I mean, because they're still performing and exercising every single day at that same level that they were prior. And um, so the, the other systems, though, is what we don't know about, right? Because we're only looking at cardiovascular and cycle and treadmill. And we're only looking at muscle on the bone. And, and we're hoping that the bone is going to be stimulated. So there's only certain things that we can look at during that nine month mission or that 12 month mission that is going to tell us they're doing as good as they were prior. So we shouldn't have some sort of worry, but we don't know exactly what's going on with all the other systems because we're not, we're not able to test them. And so we have to, we have to protect that in some way. I don't know if we're, if we're doing the best job at protecting everything right now, but um, we'd like to, like to hope that we are with the exercise equipment that we have at least we're doing the best we can and so we're not just going to assume that that they're just as well off at 12 months as they were at six we have to assume that that they're going to be a little bit worse off with the longer amount of time that they're up there so we take we definitely take that into court and and uh, we prepare for it let's just put it that way so fast question, because you mentioned age and how quickly people adapt to things or readapt to things. What, I don't know if you guys are going to know this number offhand, but you can give me a ballpark. What is the average age of an astronaut who, when they actually travel to space? And are there any like conversations happening about like the consequences of that? Is there any interest in like seeing different 
effects of prolonged time and space if somebody's younger, seeing if they can adapt better and things like that? Is that a conversation that's going on? I can answer the first one. Uh, the last number that I saw, the average age to flight was in that like mid to late 40s. Because um, if you think about the time that they're selected as an ASCAN, most of them have already been through a big professional career to that point, um, many PhDs, pilots, um, a whole host of professional experience. And so by the time they get through the ASCAN selection process of that two-year training and then they're assignment eligible, they go through that two-year mission assignment and training flow. Um, by the time that they're ready for flight, most of them, I think the last I saw was like 45 to 47. Man, I was sitting here thinking, I still got time. And then you rattled off everything else they have to have done. I was like, okay, never mind. I'm not going to space. <laughs> but that's also an interesting conversation because like mid to late 40s is past retirement eligibility for the military, right? Like the the culture here is that like a lot of people by the time they're in their mid 40s, they're like, oh, I'm like broken and can't keep up anymore. But like these are people that are like trying to peak for the most demanding thing they're going to do in their lives in the mid to late forties. I think there's a cool conversation there about longevity and and what you can achieve and all sorts of things. And say, I, I think it puts us in a, in a bit of a, a tight spot because you want to have young, able people, right. And, and you don't want to have all these inherited problems with MSK. You know, you don't want to have an old decrepit, guy like me being your astronaut so uh, <laughs> Daniel has to fix everything so you know you want to you know you know it's just like any professional team they're not gonna they're not gonna bring in an old retired guy they're gonna bring in the young talent right because they're just more healthy and they can deal with with the MSK issues a lot easier um, but then you don't have any of that experience either so NASA is, is looking for the most experienced people that they can and from different areas and different walks of life. And it's going to be tough to find that in a, in a 22 year old that has a young, healthy body that hasn't been damaged yet. So um, they're in a bit of a tough, tough spot when it comes to that. It's just part of the game. So I want to ask Corey, because we haven't heard from you in a little bit, the, the rehabilitation reconditioning process as you're coming back. So, you know, we're, we're post-flight. I know Last time we mentioned this from a couple of the different pillars, but what that process looks like for you guys, all the different check-ins, the tests, things like that. From a strength and conditioning standpoint, what kind of reconditioning needs to take place, if any, once they're once they're back in 1G? Yeah, so as soon as they get back again, I guess everybody already alluded to some of the things that are uh, real prevalent that kind of affects my weigh-in into a to a certain point as far as the vestibular proprioceptive deal because that affects how they are able to tolerate certain things also. The biggest thing for me from a strength and conditioning standpoint or where I weigh in is neuromuscular re-education. And my, again, concern about, I guess, different movement strategies, uh, motor patterns, that are different. And in addition to, we have a functional fitness assessment that we have to do at R plus five and R plus seven. That is our job to prepare them for. We want to make sure one, we get good data so that they can perform. Two, we want to make sure we put them in a position to where they can protect themselves. So for example, we have an agility drill, just a cone of four cone agility drill um, that we have on that functional fitness assessment. One of the first things we do within that first week is just make sure in a controlled fashion that an individual can 
at whatever speed initially feels comfortable, can they move to a line and stop, come to a stop? Okay, can they turn around and do that again going forward? Can they do that same thing laterally? Can they decelerate and accelerate? And then we kind of put it together in a package and to the point where we build the entire agility drill, probably a few days out of the fitness test just to, one, make sure that they can do that safely, and two, is ensure that um, we can get a good assessment. Same thing with the strength batteries that we have. That So, for example, we see, at least just in my short two years, I can say we have a one-arm leg press. At that five to seven day return mark, so when crews come back five days after or seven days after they return, they're doing a one-arm leg press. Usually, and then anecdotally not staring right at the data, we see probably about 25, Bruce can confirm, probably about 25% decrease in their 1RM strength. Um, by R plus 30, when they do that same 1RM test again, they're usually back to baseline. Now, in between the two, that's not a strength increase because it's not enough time, especially for a trained individual. What it really is, is a better expression of their strength. So far as fiber recruitment and rate coding, those two things right there. And that's really being captured in that R plus five to seven and R plus 30. And that's really where I, I try to help our way in the most. As far as the, the vestibular and the sensory motor piece, um, I'm learning as much as I can from the other team because probably outside of working here from a strength and conditioning coach perspective, I really did not have to deal with that piece of the puzzle. So you mentioned well, when I first heard you, it sounded like you do a check-in at R5 and R7. And my question was going to be, what changes in those two days? But it sounds uh, like it's it's the uh, range of the... Yes, sir. Range. Range in between the two. Okay. Because I was about to be fascinated if something happens magically between two, those two days when they get back. Yeah. <laughs> so the the question, what you were saying, made me think of, and I know we did kind of briefly touch on the idea of agility in space on our previous yeah. conversation, but... Between our previous conversation and this conversation, I reread Ender's Game, which is one of my favorite books. And I'm super curious about whether there's like space agility practice of any kind. Like, do they have to like learn how to like catch themselves as they hit the wall or like orient themselves as they come around a corner and which way is up and which way is down changes? Like, is that is that something that there's like coaching or do they just have to figure that one out for themselves up there? <laughs> Yeah, my staff, and I think they figured it out <laughs> up there on their own. And we can see the videos that they show or that they either post on social media of them trying to figure out and do certain things. Um, but we that that space agility is not necessarily part of our <laughs> exercise countermeasures or anything that we coach. <laughs> I, I started thinking about it as soon as you said four cone drill, and I'm I'm starting to picture like cones in different places in the space station that they have to like try and get between them as quick as they can. Dude, I've never read Ender's game and I have no idea what you're talking about, but space uh, agility would, it sounds like a fascinating concept. You're just not nerdy enough, man. You got to read about <laughs> the battle room. Oh man. So I think we're going to start like transitioning towards closing here. There's going to be a couple like bigger picture questions that get outside of like the day-to-day -day ops. And then I, I think we'll close with a few rapid fire questions for you guys. But one I wanted to ask, 
there's there's always talk with like NASA technology and like justifying the NASA budget and things like that about how like scientific developments that happen in the course of solving problems for space flight have added tremendous value here on earth. There's a ton of things that have like proliferated in ways that you wouldn't expect outside of space. And I'm wondering, is there anything you've learned from working on space flight human performance that you've seen translate out into one G human performance or things that you think should translate out into one G human performance that could help those of us that are never really going to have to deal with zero gravity kind of stuff. Uh, I can talk a little bit about equipment type stuff. You know, the, the, the stuff that you see on shoulder pads and, and uh, higher end football teams where they plug in a hose on the back of it and they cool the guys down right there on the sidelines. Um, that's a direct spinoff from NASA. In the military, they have air crew that are using uh, some of these cooling garment type technology. Daniel could probably speak to that. But, you know, it's it's not just NASA, but it's probably within the military itself. Years ago, they would have these cooling garments underneath their flight suits that would help keep them cool. Definitely used in the space suits that NASA is using to, till to this day. And in sports medicine, you know, we'd still use these quick disconnect type garments or whether it's for therapies or whether it's and and some sort of like a shoulder pad that that works with the running cold water through it to help cool you down so you can continue to compete without getting overheated so just to clarify that one like so like game readies and stuff like that as well that's a spin-off of nasa technology yeah awesome i mean if you if you look at pictures of of guys walking to the rocket you know back in the mercury and apollo days gemini they're carrying some little suitcase that's That's what that is yeah, that's that's basically got a, a little pump in there that's that's pushing water into their into their suit because they're they're all covered up. They're wearing a helmet. It's hot. They carry that thing out and then they would plug into something else. But um, but yeah, that's a, like a cooling garment. You know, now that you mention it, I don't know what I thought that that thing was, and it makes sense that they'd be just carrying a cooling thing. I figured it was there when I first saw them because it's in like a suitcase, you know, but. It's it's really just a cooling thing. Hmm. I mean, battery technology is is a lot of it with NASA. Your your cordless drills um, using the what they call the PGT on the space station or or you know on the shuttle days when they're doing spacewalks. It's just a little cordless drill, and and all that cordless battery technology was really developed primarily with with NASA technology. So you know you use your Makita or your Dewalt cordless drill you should thank you should thank nasa for helping develop that technology your cell phones to help it's nasa technology your, your plane doesn't crash and crosswinds your it's nasa technology all that stuff is from years and years and years of aeronautics and space experience that that bleeds out into the private sector at some point and nasa is not allowed to advertise that but i i always felt there should be a nasa meatball on the bottom of every product that they had some some sort of influence with just to remind the taxpayer that that uh their tax dollars went to improving a product or developing a product they didn't even know about well nasa doesn't always get to push it but i have seen companies push it real hard saying that like this is this is based on nasa tech to make them sound cool and we get the same thing it's like this is military grade and then you see like well the military buys like the lowest possible vendor (laughs) ever so i don't know why we're so pumped about that nasa grade does have a better reputation i think than military grade they should advertise that harder that's true actually so 
unless anybody else has some super cool expert. Well, I was going to ask Court because uh, talking about like Corey, when does the when does the space strength and conditioning manual come out where you blow all of our minds with a certain rep and set scheme that happens to work really well in space, and then we have to deal with strength coaches here in one G telling us like, oh, this is what the astronauts do. Like, obviously, it's going to work great for my gen pop athlete. Like, when when is that book coming out? Um, I'm working on the rights to it right now. I'll probably <laughs> have to get back to you later pretty soon. But what I was chime in and say too is that from NASA for me that can translate to different communities, even though we we say they work together, but NASA is very, very good at that teamwork piece, even though that's something we say we want better, we always fight, but just how complicated it is to one get a rocket off the ground, how many different disciplines or people or expertise has to come to do that and then put humans on a vehicle and have them live there. Like you, you should have seen my eyes when I got here after two years and having a, I was in a meeting, having a conversation about, I guess the vehicle that the crew members were supposed to be in. They were worried about how much CO2 that they would get rid of during exercise. And I'm like, what? Because all vehicles, yeah, they have that life support system. That was my exact same expression. I'm like, okay, I don't, I don't know about that. That's you all's job. But we have teams here that just deal with the life support of the vehicle and it is important to them again how much co2 crew members are blowing off during their exercise they need to be able to scrub that to maintain the habitability of that vehicle and we have to work with them from for as far as an exercise community too um just to figure out to solve that multifaceted problem so i thought that was really cool experience i'm not saying i know <laughs> how to do it i just you know, do the best that I can, but it's very interesting how all these people come together to solve these problems. Well, we will be staying tuned for the lunar barbell or the zero G barbell program when it comes out. (laughs) So this is something I've been thinking about a lot and it's, it's actually something that kind of like led to trying to make this conversation happen. Um, I've talked to a few people about it, but like if we go a few years back, there were things like Mission X and Train Like an Astronaut and things like that, where there were like major nationwide campaigns where NASA helped encourage physical activity. Like every tons of little kids love dressing up like astronauts or thinking about going to space or imagining that career and things like that. With renewed interest in spaceflight around the Artemis mission and conversations about the moon and Mars and all these things, do you think there's an opportunity here for resurrecting something like that, for bringing back a program where NASA is part of the conversation about physical activity in the like broader public health conversation, because the stats are not exactly moving in the right direction nationwide. And, and NASA could certainly be part of that conversation of like inspiring programs for kids and things like that. I'm just wondering if that's something you guys have thought about or talked about. Yeah, I I would just start off by saying I think the community would be interested. I can't necessarily know. I, I can speak for, I guess, the government or NASA itself. But I do know members in the community would have a lot of interest in supporting or doing an initiative like that. That's, I mean, it's just something where I hope. I mean, I've, I've been working in military human performance for a while, but my perspective on it, at least, is that a lot of what we're doing with these military human performance programs is trying to make up for 
things that are not getting done with public school physical education and just overall health and fitness culture nat- nationwide. And it's not that we're it's not that we're in a bad spot. It's that we're in a bad spot and it's getting worse and it's getting worse faster than it was getting worse before. I the the delta is getting bigger and bigger every year in the wrong direction. So we're not even like blunting the change. We need to turn that one around and I don't know if NASA weighing in would help. I don't know, but it's something that might get some kids excited. Who knows? Well, it makes me, and I'm Danielle, I'm going to put you on the spot here because you gave us the average age response and then you listed off a series of like requirements that people need to hit to become an astronaut. And and one of the things that we have talked on a couple of times here with a couple of different guests specific to uh, like jokingly the land-based military is that they're having a hard time with folks meeting the standard and it becomes a recruitment issue, which then becomes a retention issue. And have you guys, I mean, I can't imagine that it would have gotten up to the level that you guys are at in terms of we're having a hard time recruiting astronauts because they can't meet the standard because of all of the things Alex just mentioned. Is that even like on the table or is it just not part of the discussion? If that makes sense. Question and I think my heart in the military, you know, it's definitely a concern of not only just putting people in and then retaining them, but a, a matter of readiness and, and national security, right? If you think about like the long term effects of not being able to get the right people in military settings. From the astronaut corps perspective, um, I could just kind of speak to the last African class. There is over 10,000 applicants for, for 10 positions, right? And so this Jeez. is a very large applicant. <laughs> for a very small select of very highly professional and highly trained individuals. Um, there is a very rigorous medical screening process that they go through um, because if you think about what NASA is, is buying in a human, if they're buying a normal physiological human that's going into an abnormal physiological environment. And so you want to try to screen for as many health risks as possible. And so there are medically disqualifying conditions. Um, one specific to the musculoskeletal system is if somebody comes in or is applying to the core and has a full thickness rotator cuff tear on MRI, that is a, a disqualifying condition just because of the robust upper extremity shoulder um, requirements in the EMU as they train for EDA. So we do have the standards medically that they have to maintain, but we also are pulling from a very large applicant pool of a lot of really highly professional trained people. 10,000 down to 10. And I think that number was even a little higher. That's why I put over 10,000 because I think it was closer to like 13,000. And if you have any history of a torn rotator cuff, you're out. But yeah, from an MSK perspective, that's it. Yep. So just a, a brief, like just extending that a little bit, you guys can take a pool of 10,000 applicants and whittle it down to like a single digit number but there's been more and more conversation about is double commercialization digits, of space. Ten is well, a double digit. Number. I got it. Barely. Okay. Just to be clear. So, <laughs> so we have more and more conversations happening about commercialization of space. We have companies taking civilians into low Earth orbit. As I understand it, the plan is for NASA to eventually hand over space station operations to commercial organizations so that they can focus on things further out in space than that. As that stuff starts to happen, do you worry that when it's not as rigidly controlled as it is by NASA, that like they're going to be sending people up who might not 
physically be ready for that. And I, you can, you can still go to space if you're not physically ready for it, but without the like enforced discipline of the exercise protocols you guys are talking about, you're going to start running into way worse negative physiological and health consequences as you lose bone density, as you lose muscle mass, like, is that how, how, as this whole thing gets commercialized, do the interests in physiology and fitness still get maintained? I don't know if that's, I don't know if I'm making sense, but that's something I would worry about as it gets handed over. Yeah. In general, I, I would say still somewhat even to the total magnitude of it. I do know that's commercial in a sense, commercial space flight deal as far as opening it up, but they're companies, right? So that's what they need to do. I do still think though, it's going to be regulated to some extent. And we also have to figure out or even quantify what they're sending people up there to do. So versus if they're just going for a ride, you know, do a little stuff and then come back in a day or a couple of days or a week or so versus if they're going to actually do work expectations or something like that. I mean, in companies too, they're not, you know, if they have certain hard expectations, so like you're going to go build this building, you know, they're going to pick certain people that have those capabilities to do that. If it's just a taxi for um, just for the amazing experience, I think that that it'd be a, definitely a wider or broader population that they would select from. Um, but I, I do see the, the standards could potentially look different. However, I still think it'll be regulated to the point where it will still be safe at the end of the day. I mean, this might, you know, I don't know if this is a question we're allowed to ask or not, but for the more commercialized space, you know, ventures, do they consult with folks like you guys or with you guys around some of those questions about how to handle the human element of commercial space flight or no? I, I guess know. what I'm asking, has Elon Musk called any of you guys? I don't know if he could answer that one. Did. That's definitely a no. I could say no to that last question. <laughs> but I don't know if we can answer and get into that question. So probably best to stay away from it. That's fine. I do want to know. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say there there are some um, some companies that are working with NASA in some sort of capacity and were sometimes directed to, you know, answer some certain questions or they'll bring a group of people over for some sort of tour and and it's all kind of regulated and, and um, managed by NASA folks. Um, it's not like somebody's just calling me out of the blue and asking me a bunch of questions. I wouldn't, I wouldn't talk to them most probably. You mean like we did? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We don't work for Elon Musk, so it's fine. Yeah. Well, if Elon <laughs> Musk called me, I mean, you know, you, you might you might make an exception. But <laughs> um, as far as, you know, just a company and hey, trying to dig some information out of it, I don't think that it's it's gonna go very far. But it but there are there are these these groups that are because NASA has a vested interest in trying to get these these companies that they have plans to be working with, you know, if it's somebody that's going to build a lunar lander, if it's somebody that's going to build some sort of rocket capsule or whatever, then they're going to want to have information being relayed to them so they can make a better product. But as far as somebody that's just some sort of startup calling, calling up and, Hey, how does this work? You know, that that's not happening. I guess the reason that comes to mind is because, I mean, on the one hand, we've, we've now spent two episodes talking about just how intensive the, 
human performance component is of spaceflight. And then on the other hand, you hear in the news about, you know, effectively we're just trying to work towards like intergalactic cruise ships. And so I'm thinking of like the gym on a Royal Caribbean versus the three pieces of equipment you guys deal with and what that looks like. And, you know, if, like you mentioned, if somebody takes a rest because they're injured, I know a lot of people that go on cruises that don't work out at all. And if they were doing that on an intergalactic level, they would probably come back from that vacation feeling a little bit shitty. And so it would make sense that maybe, you know, they would reach out to you guys and say, Hey, how do you do this? If you've got 30 people, I, I realize we're like 30 years away from this, but like 30 people 30 sitting like an here. aggressive timeline. I know. I know. I just <laughs> made that number up 300 years away from just sending people to space. Now I got pictures of Wally in my head and these people floating around on the intergalactic space stations, man, that was a hell of a, that was a hell of a tangent. But that's kind of where my head was at when I was thinking about how do you send large numbers of gin pop people up to space without factoring in like, you guys should probably do some squats while you're up there or else it's going to be a little bit uncomfortable when you get back. <laughs> you just oh. took us like way off track. Well, I took us way <laughs> and now I'm going to bring us back to the rapid fires. So uh, the the first two of these, and these are rapid fire questions. They don't have to be rapid fire answers. <clears throat> you guys can be as elaborate as you'd like to. But I want to I want to focus on these first two, on the performance side and then on the musculoskeletal side. So whoever wants to hop in, but first from the performance standpoint, what in-flight exercise capabilities do you wish that you had that you don't? Ballistic or some jumping type activity. We don't have those capabilities, but I would love to have those capabilities if we did. Yeah, now that you mentioned that, I'm trying to figure out the logistics of somebody in zero gravity jumping and then coming back down. Yeah, we're so, going to a shuttle too, maybe. So if you think about that, something like that, where we were not controlled by velocity, uh, we could overload by velocity. Just as it's, it's hard as they could accelerate, just press, boom, and then have that come back down. So then part two of that one from a musculoskeletal, we talked about rehabilitating. Well, hold on for a second. I saw some unmuting happening for additional oh, please go. answers please. for in-flight <laughs> exercise. Some feedback that I've gotten from crew is that they miss doing pull-ups. And that's something that we really can't replicate. We can do a shoulder press. Um, so I think they would enjoy something like that. For This is not going to make any sense to you guys, but for my audience who will oh understand this completely, I'm, I'm going to get my, uh, my graphing paper out and start diagramming a space leg tuck apparatus so they can perform that exercise. <laughs> <laughs> Could you not? I mean, this is me having never engineered anything in my life relative to workout equipment in space, but could you not somehow secure them at equal to their body weight and then they're resisting that pulling up on something? Well, I'm picturing a resistance band attached to the opposite side. So am I. And same with the ballistics thing. But again, here I am having never been to space. So please, one, Bruce, go ahead. One of the things that they're looking at, the engineering at least is, has looked at for a while on that ARED device is some sort of attached the you know attachable apparatus that would hang over the a red in some sort of fashion that they could grab and then hook onto the uh the pulley cable pulley system that's part of the part of the a red maybe on a belt or some sort of other you know thing that's hanging there and then they would pull themselves up against the resistance of the cable that's coming from the floor but they just haven't they haven't really developed anything like that I mean, call me crazy, but have you ever directed them towards a company called Bowflex? Well, Bowflex actually, I think, was 
Don't tell me that's a product of NASA. Come on. <laughs> Corey, correct me if I'm wrong, but was Bowflex involved with the Pyrad originally, or is that a different company? I, I I think Bowflex was definitely involved with the Irid. Because I remember you know, when I got here, first thing, one of the first thing I said, well, why don't we just fly Bowflex? But they, uh, classic strength coach. Come on. <laughs> yeah, that that was that was a while ago, but they had uh, I forgot the reason or the rationale why. But I think the original exercise hardware before the Irid was Irid, and in it it had. Just in the canisters, it had rubber band flex packs. And I think that technology was, may have been, may have been involved with Bowflex, but I could be completely wrong. And it's Schwinn, and did they own Soloflex or did they own Bowflex? I don't even remember. I just wanted, wanted, I saw one of the commercials and I just wanted them to fly that. So. I should I should jump in here and say since we're not sponsored by Bowflex, there are other cable resistance exercise machines out there you can purchase and take to space maybe. Um, okay, so shifting from performance more towards musculoskeletal, we talked about things you can and can't do when it comes to rehabilitating injuries. So for for you guys dealing with with that side of the house, what are some capabilities that you wish you had, or or machines, or Bowflexes, or you know whatever? Um, that you don't have access to. Are you are you talking about like on orbit now, like that some sort of device mm-hmm. that space? Um, I would say some sort of way to to work in rotational motions. Um, we don't have a, the best way to train in that in that capacity. I, you're you're limited to whatever the machine is is built to resist those you know, those forces. So if I'm working in this plane, then I have to stay in this plane, right? Because it's, it has the, the viz system that's going to, to be dampened in that, in that plane. If I go to a, a, a rotational type motion, it's, it's not being dampened anymore and it's working against the machine's own vibration isolation system. And so it, it might break the machine. Um, so we're limited on how we can train people in, in, in those areas. Like, so rotational just just ro- just flat out rotational exercises or something like a d1 d2 type motion you know something like that that we just can't do it on on a space station device right now we're very much anterior plane is there and maybe we hit this last time i don't recall but like is there any is there a conversation or does there even need to be a conversation about changing the three pieces of equipment you guys have or adding to them or you know or is that just you know we're that's what it is so that's what we're gonna keep it as well there's there's updates of of different machines that happen every every now and then um the treadmill that we have now is a second generation treadmill there's there's a, a new version of the cycle that's that's up there now that will be installed in a couple of weeks actually um so it has a greater capability. Um, a red, probably not much, much in that area to replace it. I think that um, future vehicles will have totally different types of of machines instead of something that's that's a, a vacuum canister based machine. They're, everyone's moving towards electronic, you know, motor driven, um, computer controlled devices, uh, and they're they're smaller. They're light, more lightweight. 
And if you can get 600 pounds of resistance out of a couple motors versus 600 pounds of resistance out of a giant vacuum cylinder, I think they're going to choose the motors as long as they can supply the needed electricity to do it. So it, it's going to offer new, new challenges and new problems to solve, I guess, if, when it comes to maintenance and, and upkeep, but it'll solve the other problems of, you know, mass and, and volume of, of space and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Before I go to the next question, I saw an unmute from Danielle potentially about rehab or MSK equipment. I want to give her a chance. Yeah, no, the only thing I was going to say additional to the equipment piece with the rotational type exercises, just an understanding of some like acute interventions like um, corticosteroid injections or maybe some manual therapy techniques or dry needling. Some of those things that like we can get somebody back quickly. So if we are on the lunar surface, we're doing back-to-back -back EVAs and maybe come in with a bummed AC joint or an acute injury that might prevent you from going out the next day that we had some of those like rapid acute type treatments. I think those would be helpful to start understanding. Well, I keep constantly running into joint commission issues with dry needling in facilities that aren't up to inspection par. I can only imagine the joint commission's space detachment arriving at the ISS to check on your they would too. Container they would. Sure there would be a joint commission lunar module thing. They'd be like, "Hey guys, uh, <laughs> it's time for your inspection. Your hallway's not wide enough. Your fire extinguisher hasn't been. Yeah, is there a sink in here? I don't know. <laughs> Sharp containers floating around. Yeah, right. It has to be secured I mean, to a wall. It's part of the deal. <laughs> sure that all the paperwork is in place. It sounds like Danielle. They need to just send you to space. Is what I think you're making the case for. <laughs> I would like to add, and the team already knows what I'm going to say. <laughs> uh, we use blood flow restriction quite a bit um, here lately. And so we've seen great results with that on the ground and had several, Danielle and I and the group have had several conversations, even with some flight docs on what that might look like in space. Um, obviously the prescriptions might look a little bit different for the um, limb occlusion, but we could get some great results possibly for increasing VO2 max uh, for increase in strength, maybe even like hand strength in particular before they go out to their EVAs, um, anything with the shoulder where we could really kind of fine tune those exercises that we normally couldn't um, do on ARED or that we could get some something more out of it than just bands because they have their bands up there. But if we could do it with BFR, we could really maximize the use of those bands. That's actually, I've I've seen conversations about BFR as like a pretty field expedient deployable way. If you're, if you're deploying military people to a place where they're not going to have access to facilities and things like that, it, it makes sense. I've also seen guys just like strap tourniquets to their biceps and bang out curls because they think they're doing BFR. So like within reason, sure. And, and a 40 plus year old with a PhD and thousands of hours of flight experience, probably a good reference point. Somebody who's 23 and just got through selection and has access to tourniquets and dumbbells is probably not the direction you want to go with BFR, but you guys can prove me wrong. I, I would also wonder too, because obviously BFR can't replace that, like the bone loading component of exercise. So you can, you can stimulate some hypertrophy muscle kind of stuff, but it's all metabolic. So you're not getting the actual mechanical piece of it. I'm sure you guys have gone far deeper on this than I'm able to I was say Alex is There's, Alex is in over his head right now. So please. <laughs> there is some evidence-based research that shows that you can increase bone density. Nice. Um, recently there was an ACL study done and they 
weren't primarily studying the bone, but secondarily realized that that did increase the density. Whether that happens in space, I don't know, but that would be another point for sure. That'd be, I mean, if, if it can do that, you're solving a lot of problems in a really small package. So we, we talked about this a bunch earlier, um, and, and obviously there are constraints where you haven't gone too far down this road yet, but if you had like the whole range of available wearable technology that we have on earth right now, what would you want to monitor in terms of like continuously monitoring physiological variables for astronauts in space? What would you like to be able to have access to data wise? Yeah, I don't know. I, I would say I would love to have access to cortisol levels. Um, now, I don't know how I would, you would necessarily monitor with the wearables in that same quest. If we could get from whatever my measurement or way to measure active cortisol level would be great to monitor. Um, that would definitely be important for me. That would be one. Two things that I think would be helpful for what we do prescription-wise is to see their sleep and quality of sleep. Um, also, we can see how much um, they're intaking calorically through our EMR system, but we can't see how much they're expending. And so I don't know if that would even be a one-to-one -one from ground to space, but just some sort of measurement on that um, would be helpful as well. Okay, last question. And we're going to, you guys are all going to chime in on this one. We'll go Corey, Bruce, Christy, Danielle, because that's the order that you guys are in on my computer. So when you first started working in this environment, what was the biggest, and, and Corey, you kind of already mentioned the carbon piece, but like, what was the biggest shock where you were like, oh man, this is different? <laughs> when I realized that blood also floats. That's <laughs> <laughs> actually, that's an awesome kickoff. <laughs> Watching people in space and having conversations and their face gets all puffy, right? But that's because all the fluid <laughs> goes up. So when I saw that for the first time, I was like, what the heck am I doing? Uh, I would say that, it, uh, and not to talk about any physiological type stuff, um, one of the first things I noticed was just the enormity of the kind of the bureaucratic government process that you get involved with when when you're working at, at someplace like NASA. Um, prior to this, I was working at a high school and it was it was not any anywhere near what what uh, what you're dealing with with NASA. And it's a it's a big major federal agency and it's 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 a you know it's a beast in itself. And so, you know, it's like wow, I can't I'm working at this place. And so you're starstruck, but at the same time it's like, oh my gosh, what did I get myself into with all this with all the red tape, but it's just part of the game. Listen, I can assure you as someone who has never worked at NASA, but has worked with the Air Force and the Army, it is the exact same. Uh, and although they are credited with inventing the internet, it seldom works. So um, <laughs> it's good to hear that our friends over at NASA have the same issues. Bless your heart. I would say it was more of just like a challenge roadblock when I started here before that in college, you know, they didn't teach us how to treat injuries, you know, post-flight. Uh, they didn't, we didn't learn about, you know, how the connective tissue changes or muscle tissue changes or what the blood shift causes over time. So that was a big uh, learning curve for sure coming here. I'm going to say for my military friends that it always feels like deployment. So, and I think those of you like that have been deployed will kind of get this is when you're deployed, you feel everybody is in a team sport, like 
focused on a certain mission. And the whole six months to a year, like that is your main focus and you're, you're targeted on that. NASA feels that way all the time. So the team sport to like get people in space, everyone is always centered on that single priority of like safely and effectively getting crew members to space and back. And I think that's just a really fun environment to be a part of that big team focused on such a primary mission. Cool. Well, we went from blood floats to a team sport environment. So that was great. Thanks guys. Well, seriously, I mean, we've we've now had two episodes. We've taken up you guys' time not once but twice. So thanks so much for working with us and scheduling these. And I mean, I think this has been, again, not one but two fantastic and informative episodes. So thank you guys. Yeah, this, I mean, I've had my mind blown multiple times. Things I assumed to be true were completely false. Things I had not thought about were problems or it, it's been fascinating. So I really appreciate it. We definitely appreciate the opportunity too. It was definitely... Very good. I think it's great, great opportunity. So appreciate y'all's time. I do definitely. Anna, did we get in trouble at all? <laughs> no. I will just send you some more notes after, but it's it's all informative. Are you really sitting here <laughs> listening to us, or are you just like doing other stuff and then you wait for I buzzwords? I am sitting like, here listening. I have is, like a little little note up here, so then I remember. Elon Musk far. called you guys. Hi. <laughs> As Elon Musk called you guys, Anna's over there like, ah, shit. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh. Hey, Alex, let's cover our ass real quick. Oh, great idea, Drew. All right, guys. The views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode. Before you go, please rate and review the pod on the listening platform of your choice. You can also visit us on our website at www.mopsinmos.com. That's mops, the letter in, mos.com. You can check out the library of podcast episodes, our latest blog entries, any helpful resources, and also sign up for our newsletter. Drew nailed it. Just to underline a couple of things, the podcast entries have in-depth show notes on the website. So if you missed anything or you want to read any of the research we talk about, it is all there. You can, at the bottom of the website, sign up with your email and receive future updates from us. The blog posts go a little bit more in-depth in kind of written form on a couple of topics we get questions about all the time. But most importantly, I just want to ask all you guys, our best way the word gets out is absolutely word of mouth. So tell your friends, tell the people you work with, anybody you think would find it useful. Thanks for spreading the word. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to shoot us an email at either Drew or Alex at mopsandmos.com. Or there's a contact form on the website. Thank you.